coming to you from fabulous Las Vegas. The right side is the winning side. The late move is the correct move. Sports betting capital of the world. We all know when a sharp like me weighs in, the lines move. It's a party for your ears. <laughs> This is The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. I want to buy that guy a buffet. Hello, welcome to The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. We are recording from our brand new Action Network Studios at Action Network HQ here in Manhattan, 40th Street, between Madison and Park. Um, super psyched. Grinnell is sitting next to me. We've got professional microphones. Hopefully it sounds better for people. You might hear some banging in the background because we've got nine TVs we are putting up all over the office. Um, later on in the show, we have Paula Duca on, and we had a, a massive... Uh, all Hands Content Summit yesterday for the Action Network, the first one where all of us were getting together and we were all in the new space. Leduca killed it um, in the meeting, had so many good ideas, but he came on the podcast today. We literally talked about everything from him getting arrested at a racetrack when he was 12 years old for making a bet that won him $15,000 to being asked to be on The Bachelor and what happened with that after he was divorced in 2006 to like the most in-depth conversation about baseball and why the Phillies are winning and if there's value on the Phillies and why he would take like 90 players with a man on third and the game on the line before he would take uh, Giancarlo Stan. It was a great in-depth conversation with LaDuca, who's awesome. First up, we'll be back with Bob Scucci from New Orleans, representing the Boyd Gaming Books in the state of Nevada, Mr. Bookmaker Extraordinaire, my friend Bob Scucci. It's been too long. Hey, it really has, Chad. Nice to be back uh, on the show with you. Boy, that was on nice. our show. That was that was like an official. Nice to be back on the show with you, Chad. That was like, you know, like, you sounded like Bill O'Reilly coming on. <laughs> Thanks for having me today. And, uh, you know, Dan rather. Dan, yeah. Honest to God. Well, listen, we missed a couple of weeks because uh, I went on vacation. I did my annual RV trip. This one was to Oregon, where my best friend Matt convinced me and my family to go and said the weather would be beautiful. And it rained. Um, no joke. It rained every day. Uh, we were in the RV basically driving to look for sunny places and found. Um, One place on the coast of Oregon, we got six hours of sun that happened to be the afternoon. We rented ATVs. That was it. <laughs> that's, all, that's all you did. Oregon is one of the most beautiful, untamed, wild coasts I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it is stunning to look at. Um, it's sad that we only looked at it in three-minute increments from the side of rest stops uh, when it seemed like the wind was not blowing at 50 miles an hour and it was only raining straight down instead of sideways. But wow. definitely beautiful. I was actually looking at uh, some houses uh, in Bandon, Oregon, and and uh, outside of uh, Lincoln Lincoln City, Oregon. Uh, I, it's so nice up there. I thought the same thing, and I thought, what a great like retirement house to have up there. So uh, it, I didn't realize it rained as much as you say it does, but I know it rains quite a bit. But uh, that's good to know. Well, I might reconsider looking at looking at those properties. So I'm glad the subject of um, your retirement second home came up because uh, 
the last week we missed the podcast because uh, I had to go to L.A. And I was in L.A., you know, uh, I flew out on Tuesday. I was there all afternoon Tuesday in meetings and stuff. And then uh, I had to fly back on a Wednesday afternoon. And I was in meetings all Wednesday morning. It was a very quick trip. I was also at a conference and I spoke on a panel. And when the panel was over, someone came up to me. Uh, this guy presumably does very well. Um, he's a, a banker at like a really well-known firm, a prestigious firm, and he's a partner there. And so smart guy. Um, and he w- we were talking about Scooch and we were talking about his Italian villa. Um, and we were talking about, God, Scooch is, you know, living a nice life. And here you are talking about your second home. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I know. I I feel guilty sometimes. No, he also told me that he had met the CEO of Boyd Gaming uh, and asked him about you. And, like, the CEO just thought it was great and loved that you were doing the podcast and thought it was really fun. Oh, you met that guy, huh? Well, I met the banker who met the CEO. Okay, all right. I don't get to meet CEOs. I meet, you know, the people around me. Yeah, no, it's it's great to to know that the show's just getting so much traction. I, I mean, it's it's unbelievable how many people still come into the Orleans, and uh, you know they 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 miss it when we're not on. You know, they'll come in on those couple of weeks that we we take a break, and they they tell me how much uh, they they miss us being being together. And I guess you know a couple of weeks off, and we lose our timing. You know, I, that's why I've had that that awkward opening you know we got to get back into a rhythm or something i agree here's some other things that people should do they should go review the podcast uh they should rate the podcast also if you're inclined throw some questions into the apple reviews and we'll answer them on the podcast that is what we'll do we're going to use sort of the apple platform as our new way to communicate with users basically because that's the only way to move up the itunes rankings other than that like telling telling people to unsubscribe and then resubscribe, which maybe we should do that too. Everyone go unsubscribe and then resubscribe. Um, but this will help boost our, give, give some juice to our rankings, Scooch. Uh, nice. And I know, you like, I know you like to be ranked high. Listen, <laughs> so yeah. later on in the show, LeDuc is on, and he's amazing and funny and like brings a lot of just energy. But like, I'm sorry that our first podcast back is generally going to be about um, Dave Malinsky who you and I both knew very well uh, and who tragically passed away uh, recently while on a hike in Nevada. Um, This is one of the most interesting guys, and this has really affected the betting community in Las Vegas. Like, Malinsky had been in Vegas probably for 30 years and was beloved and was thoughtful and creative, and um, he wasn't your typical professional wise guy um right and so people are i'm certainly crushed i know you were very close with him i the last time i actually saw him was at your wedding um he and i had emailed a bunch in the last six to eight months especially about action um but i hadn't seen him since your wedding uh tell me your thoughts about him i have a lot (laughs) but i want to hear you first yeah, I have so many, and I've been talking about him so much uh, l- lately. But you know, having met him 25 years ago on the old Stardust line, I mean, that at that time, that radio show used to reach the entire West Coast, and every Sunday night, Dave would break down all the games. My first week on the job, listening to Dave, uh, I hadn't even met him yet, but listening to him break down a football game 
I was so struck by it because he compared it to a horse race. And I never heard this kind of analysis where he started talking about the pace of the football game the way he would the pace of a horse race, where this horse would get out to the lead. He would say, this team is going to get out to an early lead and, and, and start off fast. And the defense is going to start to uh, to crack down and, and uh, the slow the pace of the game down a little bit. And then this is here's the closer. And, and so that was my uh, initial introduction to him uh, before actually having met him. Then I started actually doing some shows with him. So my early years with Dave were basically on the professional level. It wasn't until the last five, ten years that I realized just the depth of the man because he told me so often that as much as he's recognized for a sports handicapper and that's provided his lifestyle, it, it was merely a vehicle to get to his true passions in life. And that's what we always talked about more recently in the last few years. He was one of the few people in the sports industry that I could get together with for hours and never even talk about sports. And that was rare. And, and that something that we both kind of appreciated every time we got together, because it was kind of like a little hiatus from what we are normally known for. And let's talk about the things that, that, that truly kind of drive our uh, desires and, and things that kind of uh, make life worth living. And, uh, and he described his really true passion were, were these bristlecone pine trees up in Mount Charleston here in, in, outside Las Vegas, which I didn't even know about until, and I've lived here most of my life. And uh, he introduced me to these trees, which are actually the the longest living things on the planet. I mean, these trees are like 3,000 years old. And he would go up there every week and he would catalog these trees and he'd look at them a, a, and try to you know, that you could see all the twists and turns of 3,000 years of these trees growing, and he would compare them to things uh, in everyday life, uh, the, the human condition, and each tree would represent a different story. And that's what I always found fascinating with him, besides the fact that he was a, a brilliant handicapper. So, you know, it, the, the, that's why, you know, there's so many people that he's touched uh, over the years that uh, uh, are, are kind of coming out now and talking about their experiences with him because uh, he was a, a, a fascinating man. You'll remember this place, Scooch. It wasn't the pepper mill. It was this place like across the street. You could sit at patio, sit on a patio and some chairs outside. It had like sandwiches. And it wasn't like the hotel that was across from the Stardust either. It was like some random coffee shop almost that was on Las Vegas Boulevard. And I went out there and like I had spoken to Malinsky before and we had set up this day and that's when I was going to start doing the book and I was so excited it was going to be, you know, you guys in Boston and him and we sit down and he's like, I can't do the book with you. He's like, I'll talk to you as much as you want and I will give you details and I will share some ideas, but I have partners. They don't want me to do it. I don't want to do the book. It's too revealing. So we ended up just sitting there talking for like two hours. We talked about how much he likes to make chili on the weekends for his college football and the NFL betting and does not leave the house. And it was clear to me that this guy was so, so creative um, and that he was so smart about seeing the game. He like saw it in a way that was like a heat map almost. And he talked about efficiency and pace in a way that nobody was doing at that point. 
so incredibly thoughtful. I was totally bummed he wasn't going to do the book because, you know, Alan Boston sort of became this breakout character in the gambling community because of what uh, what happened in that book. And Malinsky, to me, was going to be the same way, but it was also indicative of, of like, he liked his privacy, he liked his solitude. Um, that came through in Shining Colors and sort of over the years and the way he got into nature and got into conservation and sort of became something that was so different than what you would expect from, you know, from what you would think a, a regular hardcore gambler would be. I mean, it was a rough week. I mean, you know, he was missing for five, six days and we were, you know, working with a lot of the friends and the family or, you know, organizing search teams and it was super windy so nobody could get up that high and it was it was a tough week all right scooch well listen we love dave malinsky may he rest in peace uh i know we're both sorry and and many people in the las vegas community uh are sorry that he's no longer with us and scooch you and i are going to catch up next week together face to face in new york uh next up on the podcast we're switching gears a little bit Going to Paula Duca, who tells us some of the craziest stories about betting on the horses when he was 12 and winning $15,000 and getting arrested, about why he thinks John Carlos Stanton is the 90th best player to have at home plate when you've got a man on third, two outs, and the game on the line, and his time when he was almost a contestant on The Bachelor. All right, as promised, my next guest on the podcast Maybe one of the best new additions we've made to the Action Network. Four-time MLB All-Star catcher, longtime Major League Baseball veteran, now my best friend in the world, Paul LaDuca. What's going on, Paul? What's going on, Millsy? Uh, good, man. Just trying to stay a little dry here in New York, getting a little rain. It seems like uh, we're not going to get a break and get any good weather, but I am feeling good, though. Feeling good about some games tonight, too, as well. Listen, we had, uh, as, you, as you're aware, because you were with us uh, yesterday, we had our first yeah. Action Network Content Summit in our brand new office space where we are recording the podcast today. Um, and what was amazing was how many people, there was one guy who came into the office wearing a Mets hat uh, in honor of you. There's one guy from L.A. who stood up and said, you are my favorite Dodger. And then there was another guy who came out and said, I played, uh, Paula Duca was the most valuable player I had in my 2002 <coughs> video game. Did you expect that kind of response? Is that what it's like going through life as Paula Duca? No. Here's the deal. Like, I go around being a normal person. And what did I stand up and say? I said, if you all tell me, I look small in person. I'm going to knock you out, <laughs> but I'm a regular guy. So for me, you know, my father told me a long time ago that they're going to, you know, always sign autographs, always take pictures, always that, because one day they'll forget about you. And you know what? I've almost feeling forgotten until I joined the action network. And yesterday was, was a proud moment for me. I had four guys hug me and it sort of had man crushes on me yesterday. It was, it was a little scary. Oh my God. I had no idea it was like that. I figured like, cause I will tell you every single time people talk to me about like the people we've hired. Um, and I say, you know, we, we brought in Paul LaDuca. People are like the catcher, Paul LaDuca. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, Oh my God, I love that guy. 
I think there was like a, um, I think it's because you're so small. And um, I will say that when I walked off the elevator into the office yesterday, you were trying to figure out where the office was. And um, I saw you and I'm like, holy fuck, this guy's a lot smaller than I thought he was. And so, no, so like, then I walk in, right? So we walk in with everybody, and a lot of people know who Jeff Schwartz is. He's an offensive lineman for the, the Giants uh, and, and one of our own at Action, at Action Network, and he's a clown too. And he looks right at me. He goes, wow, you're short. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, you're like 6'8", 340. Like, of course. And then I'm like, we look like Schwarzenegger and DeVito and twins. Oh, my God. That's so good. I love that. That's what, you know what? We've been trying to figure out what to call the podcast you guys are going to do. And maybe we should call it twins. That's actually not a bad idea. I mean, think about it. Like, I come up to what? Like, I don't come up to his nipples. Sorry to get a little bit. No. People are a little bit like, I, I don't. He's a big human being. He's big a massive guy. And he stuck his big size 17 shoe in my face all day while, during the meeting. You know what? I noticed that. He like was stretching out and he had his feet on the desk and you were right in front of him. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. He, he is like off. He is really invading Leduca's space right there. And he was wearing some Asics. Do they even make Asics anymore? That might be I the mean, only shoe that fits Jeff Schwartz. <laughs> one of my favorite things yesterday was, you know, we spent the whole day, and so people know, like, we were all sort of the entire team was here in the office, and we were just throwing ideas against the board. It's like the first time that the entire action team has gotten together and sort of thrown ideas together because we're, A, didn't have the office in New York yet, and B, um, everyone lives every, so, so many other places. So my favorite story that you threw on the board yesterday, we were talking about, like, odds on The Bachelor, and you threw out that you had been invited, uh, called about being a bachelor one year. Tell the story of what happened. Yeah, so uh, I had been going through a divorce, and uh, I was uh, in um, now getting traded. Um, I'm in New York, and I got approached to be the bachelor, approached by um, ABC. And <laughs> then the lady called me, and it was really weird because she asked for pictures. So now I'm like, okay, wait, like, you know, I know Google wasn't as, you know, uh, I guess relevant then as it was now. I mean, this wasn't, this was like 12 years ago, somewhere in that area. And uh, Jesse Palmer was one of the first ones. So they had had an athlete. And then uh, she asked for some pictures. I sent some pictures. Uh, and then I, and then the next question was, how tall are you? And I'm like, in your program or in your heart? And she goes, started laughing, and then I go, I'm, you know, I'm five foot ten in the program, but I'm five foot eight in your heart. <laughs> and she just goes, okay, we'll hear, you know, we'll uh, get back to you soon. And it was like, I mean, the, the phone call couldn't have ended in like more than a second and a half after that. And then, and then I was obviously informed in the email that I wasn't picked, and it was because of my height. Because it is true, if you watch The Bachelor now which I am a, it's probably my favorite show because the comedy part of it, it really makes me laugh. It's great. Uh, but they're really, you never see a girl towering over a guy. So, and that would have happened with me. So yeah, that, that went away very quickly, Chad. When, um, when they called you, what year was this? It was like 2006, 
Right when I was with the Mets. And so when were you on the cover of Sports Illustrator? Because I'm thinking like... 2000, that that 2006. All right, so that's probably when she saw you. So I can't even believe that she needed to see more images of you to decide if you were sort of wow. bachelor worthy. Yeah, it is. I'm like up to bike. It's... It, yeah, I am pretty small compared to everybody else in there. Oh, no, 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 I, no, 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 no. I was actually saying you're so handsome on the cover of the issue oh, that I can't believe she you. would need to hey, see you. Hey, you know what? The key was I do my own eyebrows. What do you do, like tweeze them? Yeah, you got you to gotta shape them. Shape them, wax them. No, I can't go wax. I had a bad reaction before with that. I, I shape them. I mean, you are such a it's fucking key. pretty boy. I get compliments. Think about it. Old men, hairs everywhere. Got to clean it up. So true. Is that is that part of your charm? Is that how you score? Is like you're just your eyebrows are perfect. Well, now it's the salt and pepper beard. It's just it's it's an, it's a it's it's an attraction. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Here's my next question. We always play a game in the podcast, and we didn't play it with you the first time you and Jeff Schwartz did a podcast together called You Bet Your Life. And I can't think of many people like you had a great career in Major League Baseball. We've established you're not that tall of a guy. Um, You got through your life on just grit and determination. And so um, tell me about the biggest risk you've taken in your life. This is the theme of You Bet Your Life. The biggest risk you've taken and how it played out. Well, the biggest risk I ever taken, and this is a true story, and uh, I've told it to many people. I was 12 years old, um, and uh, my father and I used to go to Turf Paradise. I grew up in Arizona. Uh, I was born in New York. I moved out to Arizona when I was young. So we used to go to Turf Paradise, which was a racetrack, a horse race um, where the horses run, and there was a jockey that owed my father money. Um, my father had a bar called the NFL Sports Pub. That was the name of the bar. It was on 19th Avenue in Peoria. And this jockey used to sit there, get drunk every night. My dad used to keep tabs for people. It was like in the old school days. Well, one day, my dad finally approached him. I'll never forget. I was, just got back from school. And he approached him. He was like, hey, you, you got to start giving me a little bit of money. You owe me money. He's like, ah, I got a horse for you. I got a horse for you next week. I'll pay you back with this horse. He's going to run. And I'll never forget the name of the horse. The name of the horse was Sweeter Day. So it was like on a Thursday, the horse is going to run. So my dad had bad stomach problems, real bad stomach problems. And he struggled with ulcers before tagaments were actually over the counter and over the counter or vice versa. I mean, he eat them like Tic Tacs. So we're going on to the racetrack. My mother's listening to this in heaven. Sorry, mom. He cuts me out of school. We get out of school. And we're going to the racetrack to go bet this horse. Um, so we get into the track. Now, a lot of people don't realize back in the day, there used to be a line into the racetrack that said you had to be 18 and stand behind this line. Now you can go to a racetrack and bring your son or daughter up to the window and they don't pay attention. There's no security guard. There's security guards, but there used to be heavily, it would be more secured like the windows. So my dad starts having this attack where his stomach starts bothering him in the bathroom at Turf Paradise. Now, he's going there to bet $1,000 to win on this horse, and this is back in uh, 1984, 85, somewhere in that area. Um, a lot of money then. The horse is 17-1 on the board in the 11 hole. So he's literally in the bathroom 
throwing up. And I now am looking at the post, three minutes post, two minutes post. I'm yelling at my father. I'm like, Dad, he can't move. He's, he's immobilized at this point. Now he's like, he's out. So I reach in his pocket and I take the money. He's like, what are you doing? He, and I said, just stay down. Don't worry about it. So I can see the horses are rolling to the gate. So they start loading the horses, loading the horses. Um, and I'm looking at the security guard, looking at the security guard. And I rolled up to the window right when they put the 10 in. And I said, give me a thousand. Went on the 11. She punched the ticket. And she says, wait a second. You're way too young. She goes to hit back the button and boom the bell went off now the ticket's live security card comes over i get handcuffed the horse wins by five and i now i'm in the downstairs my dad's obviously his ulcers are way better and i'm handcuffed but now it's a fifteen thousand dollar bet that that teller is now responsible for so my dad is obviously going nuts, like, you got to give me the money. He punched the ticket. Uh, long story short, I was banned for turf paradise for <laughs> a while. Um, um, and I'll never forget this. You know, the, obviously the woman got fired. But my father waited outside and gave that woman $5,000, and it was probably more than she made for the year punching tickets at turf paradise. Um, cause she couldn't, she would, she didn't have to punch the ticket. What happened was she was in such a hurry because they were ready to go off. She didn't look up and see me. So she wasn't even and paying attention. She like someone, she just heard a voice that said, give me, you know, a thousand bucks on this horse at, you know, it was a 15 to one when it was I going said off. I a thousand to win on the 11. You know, back in those days, Chad, you really didn't have the co-mingling. You didn't have, uh, you didn't have to explain what track because you weren't betting Santa Anita or the other racetracks. You didn't have all that. You had, you were just betting one track. That's when people went, that's when fans went because you had to go to the racetrack. You couldn't simulcast. So yeah, like I, I we were, it seemed like eternity. We were downstairs for like, uh, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half. And, and then I had to go home, go home late, <laughs> keep my mouth shut, not tell my mom what's going on. Um, you know, but always behind the lines, my mom always knew because whenever my dad would go outside and go buy some stuff or buy my mom a dress, she would always whisper to me, must have been a good day at the track. (laughs) So your mom never knew. So your dad won the 15 grand. He very kindly gave the ticket writer five grand of that. How much did the guy at the bar actually owe him on the tab? You know, I never knew that. I never knew that. Um... It had to be up there for my dad to be like that. Anybody that knows my dad, he was owned restaurants for a zillion years um, in Arizona and, you know, a kind of guy that would let the tab go. So maybe it was up there, (laughs) but he was a guy that always, I remember he always used to sit at the corner of the bar, drink, have some drinks, um, and he would leave and he would stiff the bartender all the time. And then I remember my dad asked him and I remember my dad specifically asking him, after we left this point out saying, okay, if you're not going to pay me, give me a horse because the guy didn't ride that many horses to be honest with you. But that's the biggest risk I ever took because I, I'll never forget. Cause you gotta understand when you're 12 or 13, you hear, I heard it. So I, I, 
it's, it was different for me. I was sitting there and I heard him tell my father the horse was in loose. So now when you're 12, you really believe it. You know what I mean? Right, right, so right. So my, my thing was, my thing was, oh my God, this horse is going to win and we're going to lose out on 15. Now I would have never made the bet. I would have been like, yeah, we're probably going to save a thousand, you know? You, you, so it was just because I was 12 or 13, you know, I didn't, I went, I went into panic mode, you know? Oh my God, that's insane. So your dad, I bet the the tab had to be more than, had to be less than 15, but also less than 10, because otherwise he's giving away his profit there, right? So, um, 100%. Uh, you never told your mom that story. She has no idea that you went to the track, made the bet, got arrested. No, there's, there's no way. You know why? I, I didn't go back till I was like, I don't know, 15 or 16. And one of the guys there said, there was a picture of my face on the bulletin board in the security office. If you ever see this kid, you got to get some that. You're like on the blacklist, but by the time you were 15. You I were was probably, on the blacklist you, you, of Turf Paradise. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it doesn't get much lower than that. That is like, it's almost like a badge of shame to be on the blacklist of Turf Paradise. How bad do you yeah. have to be to be on the blacklist of Turf Paradise? Yeah, and you know what? It's like, I always felt like that security guard had it out for me because... I'll be honest, like when I was 12, 13, 14, if I had five, six, seven, eight dollars, I was always like trying to get a guy to, you know, bet for me. If I was going, you know, we'd go with our, we'd go with our buddies. We'd cut class, go to the dogs, go to the horses. Dogs were way easier because you could get guys to bet for you. And if we, you win, you, you give them a little bit here and there. Um, but it sucked because we were sharp. I had a couple of us were sharp. So if we hit for a thousand dollars, you'd be like, Oh man, we'd wait. And then I'd have to give it to my dad. And then my dad would cash it. And then of course my dad would take the big on me. <laughs> Where'd you get this from? <laughs> so you, because you didn't want to trust the guy to, to cash it. Cause you had, I mean, you know, there's no IRS problems anymore at the, uh, at the horses. Now they have that solved, but yeah. you used to have to sign anything over $600. So you didn't want that guy signing the ticket and taking the money under his name. You weren't getting that money back, you know? How much juice was your dad charging you? Oh, at least 200 He was the worst. He was the worst, my dad. I love him to death. He's the best. But he was the worst for the game to that. He used to take the vig off the top all the time. He was charging you 20% on $1,000 cash. Yeah, because he knows I was cutting class because he was getting the heat from my mom. So he used to say, from the heat from my mom, you know, he, your mother's giving me because I know you're cutting class. Because at that time, I, I, when I was cutting class, I was a freshman and sophomore. I was nobody. I couldn't cut class as a senior because I was starting to blossom as a player. I grew to all five foot eight. I was five foot two my <laughs> freshman year in high school, and then I blossomed to all foot, five foot eight my senior year. So I couldn't cut class my senior year because I was actually becoming a decent baseball player. Oh my God, that is classic. That is too yeah. funny. Um, I need to transition you because uh, okay. we, we actually do have to talk a little bit of baseball. Like, we're a month into yeah, the season. I don't think anyone saw, like, the Phillies and Diamondbacks being a preview of the NLCS. I don't think anyone, like, expected Otani to be what he's doing. I thought what you talked about yesterday in our meeting, just about the way sort of the strikeout per at-bat ratio matters. Like, when you look back on the first month of the season – from a betting perspective, who's been the biggest surprise? Who's been more effective? Who have you looked at and said, wow, these guys are crap and I should not be playing them until I get a better sense of who they are midway through the year? 
Well, obviously the Phillies have been dynamite. And so have the Braves. I mean, the Braves, at least early. I mean, the NL, NL East in general has been has been great. Um, whether you're a fan of the team or whether you've been betting the team, the Mets have been great uh, against the spread. And the Phillies, you're right. The Phillies, you know, the Phillies did it the right way. They sort and, – and this is something that I've always tried to tell the Met fan, and, and it's working so far this year, but it hasn't worked. The Phillies built through the farm system through pitching. Now, they did get Jake Arrieta off, uh, off of free agency, but it's hard to sign people or pitchers that, to go into a pitcher's or a hitter's ballpark. So the Phillies have a tough time signing guys that want to come there to pitch. So what did they do? They dumped everybody, built through the farm system through pitching, and now they're starting to see the success. And then they went out and got Arietta to be somewhat of the father figure of that staff to help those kids out, and it's paying off. Now, the Mets, I always thought they should go more of the other route because they play in a bigger ballpark. Pitchers are going to want to come pitch in, at, at City Field. They could get free agents to come pitch in, um, there. But through trades and through other stuff, obviously the pitching has carried them. But now look what got them to the record they've gotten. Quality at-bats from uh, uh, Todd Frazier. Quality at-bats from Adrian Gonzalez. Had a key grand slam. They've gotten some big hits from veteran guys that they signed. Jonas Sessus is not hitting a ton, but he hit a big grand slam the other night. The thing that I, I've always stressed is that you need to get quality at bats to succeed, and you need pitching, and you need bullpen. And still, when you look at the top of the list when it comes to pitching, the Astros is there are, are, are right at the top, and they're not a surprise. Um, when it comes to disappointments, it's the Dodgers. But I, I predicted and I thought that they would back up Chad, and the reason why was it was going to be the second year for Bellinger that a tough a, a, you know, weird start times to begin the year. They had four left-handed starters in a rotation. Um, when you have that many left-handed starters in a rotation, it can skew the lineup and it can, it can get another team hot. Um, I can explain that in an article. I'll explain that to you in a certain way. Like when you get a lefty out there, certain teams kill lefties. And when you get to face three in a row, it makes Kershaw – not as nasty sometimes, and he struggled a little bit. So there has been some surprises, but I do really, do truly feel the Dodgers are in deep trouble. And you mentioned the Diamondbacks. They're for real. Let's go back to the Phillies for one second because um, Gabe Kapler was the joke of the league that that first, that opening day, like those first few days, the way he was using his bullpen. So what has changed? Like, has he changed his approach is he thinking differently about the way he uses pitchers or is he just a genius i don't know it's a good question it's something that i'll tell you what it might maybe it's fool's goal early in the season because as a hitter early in the season it's 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 really you want to face the guy as many times as you want it's like when you face a guy third time around he's obviously going to be easier to hit because you've seen him i wrote an article um, and actually caught a game over. I bet a game over of the Yankees and the Blue Jays because the Yankees had faced Marcus Estrada already, and I think the the Blue Jays already faced Sonny Gray, who was struggling. So to me, second time around, there was going to be runs. They already seen each other. 
So maybe that's what's helped the Phillies is that he's taking the guys out so early. They're not seeing they're, the rest of these teams are seeing short sample sizes. Um, and maybe it's going to catch up later in the year. But they do got a ton of talent and do got a ton of young arms that are, are really good. And they got some, some bats. Here's the thing. You don't need to stick a ton of bats into that ballpark um, because that ballpark is going to elevate your, your batting average already with, with the dimension. Do you think is it better? Are the Phillies overvalued now, or is there still value in the Phillies every night? I think there's still value in the Phillies as of right now, as long as this weather keeps staying up. I mean, uh, it's still a little chilly out here in the east. I do think the numbers are going to start going through the roof. I'm still convinced the ball's juiced. Um, listen, I played in 2002, I mean, in 1998 and 2002, and those guys were on rocket fuel. Um, and they broke all those records last year. And the commissioner won't admit it. He caused his own collusion. When my daughter can hit 15 home runs, every agent's asking for the same amount of money. And then you got the MLPA going back and forth. Well, you guys, everybody's hitting 15 home runs. It, it wasn't that way. So you caused your own collusion. So you have to win this with pitching now even more. And you look at, look at the strikeout. Giancarlo Stanton is struck out 35 times. I struck out 30 times one year. One year. This is the, what, but they don't care. The, the teams don't care anymore about the strikeout. They value the three. Every team is an Earl Weaver American League team. Pitching, and let's wait for the three-run homer, Chad. Well, you were talking about that yesterday. Like, the Yankees are a team that has a ton of strikeouts. They're, they're all or nothing. They're the Dave Kingman of the modern era, right? And so what does that do? Does that make them, from a betting perspective, how do you look at them that way? Yeah, but, okay, now go look at the Yankees. Would you be surprised if they're, the, they're number one in all of baseball in OPS? Um, I couldn't believe it. But they are. Right. And so something is working. Uh, okay, they had a 14-run game. They lead all of baseball in runs scored. If you look at their offensive stats, they've been giant. So the system is working because the, all of baseball has gone to this, where they don't care about the strikeout. They think the strikeout's just as good as a ground out to second, which I get it. It is. But they're looking at strikeout. They've gone to – Guys that used to wear jock straps, the guys that don't wear jock straps in the front office. I mean, almost 90% of the teams, you have a guy that did play and a lot of guys that didn't play. And, and they're just looking at the Sabre metrics. They're looking at this and that. When I'm looking at some, I look at a high strikeout rate on a guy and a high strikeout rate in the pitcher. It's, it's, relevant, it's very relevant because to me as an MLB catcher, I'll put it this way. Um, I would rather face, like, guys used to say they, they, why was Ryan Sandberg in the Hall of Fame before Andre Dawson? And I used to ask that question. And I remember asking Andre Dawson because he used to work for Florida. And I'm going to turn around to this and get to this and, and, and sort of make sense here. And, and they said they used to walk Dawson to get to Sandberg. And there's just certain guys that you don't want to face in certain situations. Um, and certain guys 
that you don't mind facing certain situations. And Giancarlo Stanton is one of those guys. Yeah, the stats say that. He hit 50-some on home runs. He's this kind of monster. But now put him in New York, and he's facing Chris Sale, or he's facing a giant pitcher. He's an out. He is an out every time. Now, Albert Pujols, at 40 years old, is not an out. If there's a man on third and the game is on the line, who do you want at home plate? Giancarlo Stanton's like number 90. He was number 90. I'll give you 89 guys that I'd want Brett Gardner on his team because I know he's going to put it in play. There's certain guys you stay away from as a catcher, and there's certain guys you don't mind. Now, when it's 8-1, if we're winning – when I was catching, I would give Giancarlo Stanton whatever he loves when we're winning 8-1. But when it's 1-1, he's going to get whatever he doesn't love. And, and whatever he doesn't love is a 95-mile-an-hour fastball belt high. He can't hit it. If you throw it belt high every time, it's an out. So that's my relevant where, where, I, where I try to tell people is, like, there's certain guys and certain stats. When you look at guys, you got to look at certain things. And, and I think that's big, one of them is a big thing. So that's interesting Giancarlo Stanton, 90th guy you'd have at home plate when there's a man on third and the game is on the line. Brett, You need a hit, Chad. You need a hit. You, you tell me you can't name 20 guys you'd rather have than Giancarlo Stanton. You need a hit. You'd rather have Albert Pujols, whose bat speed yeah. is about half of what it was 15 years ago. Yes. Then, then Giancarlo Stanton, 100%. Because I know that Albert has done this before. Uh, and is in this situation. Now, am I piling on on Giancarlo Stanton? A little bit. I get it. His, his stats are going to skew. But what I'm trying to explain to people is that there's certain guys that have stats and there's certain guys that have real stats. Like, you know, Mike Trout is a right-handed hitter. Miguel Cabrera, these are two guys that can go down as some of the best, two of the best right-handed hitters of all time. I mean – what Miguel Cabrera has done, and I had a fortune to play with him. Like, and you didn't want. I used to laugh when guy when the bases were loaded because I knew he was going to hit a rocket somewhere. You just knew there was just certain guys you wanted to stay away from. Um, Tony Gwynn. I remember. I remember uh, Andy Ashby. I went out to the mound one day and asked him, I'm like, what do we do with Quinn? And he goes, I'm done. I'm throwing it down the middle and just hope he pumps, pops it up. <laughs> he goes, the only thing, we, only thing we should do is don't throw him in. And I'm like, why? He goes, because then he can hit a home run. If we throw him away, he'll just get his base hit. And that was the truth. So I never set up in the Tony Gwynn ever. Even Kevin Brown told me that too. Don't set up to Gwynn in inside the Gwynn. That's why Tony Gwynn didn't hit home runs. Tony Gwynn could hit 20 if he wanted to. He had the quickest bat ever, but he just took his hits whenever he wanted to. So now those were the certain guys. And now I'm mentioning some of the best hitters ever. Now Albert Pujols is a great hitter, but I would take Didi De Sorry, Didi. I mean, he's been having an unbelievable year, but his at bats that you gave him, Gardner. There's like five guys on the Yankees I'd take before Giancarlo Stanton right now. Okay, so you can't say his name, but you still would take him before Giancarlo Stanton. But what about? What about the guy who just had that 21-pitch at bat that is the most pitches ever in an at-bat? How hard is that? Brandon Belt. Uh, it's impossible. 
it's very tough. Uh, I was actually, I want to say, I, I, I know the listeners will know this. Alex Cora had an at bat, and I was on the bench. I want to say, uh, seventeen pitch, and he hit a homer. Um, and I'll, I, it seemed like an attorney. We were laughing, and when when he hit the home run, it, it we, I, I was. I think they panned to the dugout. We were in shock. And, and then I think it was Brandon beat hit. I think Brandon might have beat either Alex's or somebody else's. But that's insane. I think the most I ever had was an 11. But 21 pitches is, I mean, that's a fifth of a guy's pitch count. Think about it. It's unbelievable. Oh, my God. You're so right. That is such great context. Like, how hard is it to concentrate for 21 pitches in one at-bat? It, it, it's very hard. And as a catcher, too, you get to a point, even when you're eight, nine, ten pitches in, where you're like, and you'll go to the mound. And sometimes I've had pitchers go like, man, should I just roll it up there? Should I throw the rosin bag? And you almost try to change strategies and to the point where the older I got as a catcher and he kept fouling it off and fouling off the fastball. Um, I would just like, you know what, let's just stick with the fastball because I have a feeling that he keeps fouling off. We throw him something else, he might run into something. And because I learned that one time from Manny Ramirez. I was kept throwing Manny Ramirez fastballs inside. He fouled off like seven straight to the right, to the right, to the right, to the right. I'm like, God, he keeps getting beat. Should I throw him something else? I, I threw him a slider. He hit it 800 feet, Chad. And I remember, I remember telling my, somebody – I'm like, what did I just do? I went to the mound and I told the pitcher that was my fault because, you know, some pitchers will listen to you, some won't. But Manny Ramirez was so talented that he was able to fight off seven straight fastballs because he was sitting on that slider the whole time. And he, when he got it, he hit it 800 feet. So I learned that one lesson right there was like, you know what, I'm sticking with the fastball until he puts it in play, until he does something with it. And... You know, if you look at the at bat with Brandon, at towards the end of it, he just kept throwing him fastball after fastball. You know. Oh my God, Polly, that is so that is so good. Um, <laughs> oh my God! All right, I got like eight ideas I need you to start thinking about to write that we can talk about after the podcast. <laughs> um, everyone, go follow at Paul Laduca sixteen. His stuff on the Action Network is insanely insightful and as colorful. Paul, you write the way you speak. Like every story I read of yours feels like I'm talking to you, which is like, which is as good as it gets. You can't ask for anything else. Um, keep killing it, brother. Thank I'll, you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. I, I, I told you I want to, I'm going to start breaking out some stories for the people too. So some minor league stories. I got one for you. The next time I'm on, we took over uh, uh, an IHOP in El Paso when I was in double A. We got thrown out, though, but my buddy was cooking moons over Miami by the end of that night. <laughs> All right. Listen, we'll do it next week. Sounds good, Shadow. All right, brother. Thanks. All right, brother.